and in the world. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. And when you get there, if you can stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Second Corinthians 3, if you have to use a table of contents, feel free to do so. We're going to start in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put on a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, would you lift the veil from every heart in this room and every heart that is listening. God, this is so far beyond us. God, this is so far beyond me. Lord, only you can remove the veil that we would behold glory, true glory. God, would you help us right now to recognize the fact that you are here, that the living God of the universe 
the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, the one who sustains every living thing, including us, that he is here in our midst. God, I pray that your holy fear would come upon your people right now. And God, would you pour out your spirit among us? Pour out your spirit, God, on us. That we would behold glory today. And God, just like Moses asked, I ask, God, show us your glory. Show us your glory. And God, I can't make anyone see it. I can't show. I can't do it. I can't talk anyone into seeing this. God, only you can. Spirit, that's your domain. That is your work. And God, I'm just desperate for you to work in our midst, God. Would you work in every heart, every mind, so that today we would truly encounter the living God, that we would truly behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, And that having beheld glory, that we would be changed. That we would be transformed into that same image from one glory to another. One degree of glory to another. God, would you do it now? For our joy. The good of a world that is desperately in need of you. The glory of your name. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. This is the time of the year when people make resolutions, right? It's called New Year's resolutions after all. But I just read an article that said that 38.5% of adults in the U.S. said New Year's resolutions. That's almost four out of 10 people in America. Now, health-related topics are the most common New Year's resolutions. In fact, 48% want to exercise more, making it the most popular resolution, followed by things like eating healthier, losing weight, saving more money, cutting down on drinking, spending less time on social media, spending more time with family, etc. Anybody here make any of those resolutions? Now here's a question. How successful do you think people are in keeping their resolutions? What percentage of them actually maintain them? You ready? 9%. 9% of people who make New Year's resolutions keep them. In fact, one out of four quit within the first week. One out of four, okay? This is based on five studies over an extended period of time. So one out of four quit within the first week with many more quitting by the second February or but second Friday of January 
so much so that they named it Quitter's Day. <laughs> so the second Friday of every January is called Quitter's Day. Okay, now you know. And by February 1st, almost half of all people who set New Year's resolutions have quit on their goals. Pretty wild, right? Now, I don't share this to depress or discourage those of you that have made New Year's resolutions. I really don't. I, I hope you keep yours throughout the year and, for that matter, throughout your life. But the thing that's been on my mind, guys, is this. Why do we make, why do we make resolutions this time of the year? It's pretty obvious, right? The New Year is a time when we feel we can hit the proverbial reset button. It offers us a blank slate, so to speak, an opportunity to start again, to start anew, an opportunity to grow. This is the time of the year that brings hope for change, that we are not stuck where we are, that we're not stuck in our ways, but that change is possible. And this desire for transformation lies deep in the heart of every human being. This is why we enter therapy, why we join health clubs, why we read self-help books and attend seminars and conferences and listen to podcasts, why we make New Year's resolutions, because as one pastor put it, the possibility of transformation is the essence of hope. The possibility of transformation is the essence of hope. We all want to change into something greater than what we presently are. Would you agree with that? I know I do. I have a longing. I, I have a deep longing to be something beyond what I am now. Someone who's less anxious and more fearless. Someone who's a lot more settled and at rest in stressful situations. Someone who's a lot more self-controlled in dealing with emotions like anger and hurt. I long for that. I ache to be that kind of person. Someone who resembles Jesus. Interestingly, the Bible says that's what God intends for me as well. And not just me, for all of us who belong to him. It tells us that God saved us with the intent purpose of making us like Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what you and I have been predestined for. That's what we have been chosen for to be, that's what we have been saved for to be remade in the image of Jesus. And when that happens, when, when God changes us, we don't just do the things Jesus would have done. We don't just go around doing the right things. No, we become the right kind of people. And that's how you know real transformation is taking place. I act different because I am different. I live differently out there because I'm different in here. And that's what our passage this morning is all about. It's about how we change, specifically how we are changed by God. And this is what we in the church call sanctification. 
And before we dive into our text, I want to say a word about sanctification and specifically how it differs from another doctrine in Scripture that we talk a lot about, and that's justification. Now, justification is the crux of the gospel, right? It is the very basis of our life in God. And what is justification? It is the gracious act of God whereby he declares a sinner righteous through faith in Christ. In other words, God justifies us. He declares us not guilty, not because of anything in us, not because of anything we have done, but all because of Christ and what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Now, justification is a declaration, and this is real important for you to know. It is a declaration. It's an act. It's a once-for-all declaration meaning once you're justified you can't be more justified before god so if god has declared you innocent you can't become more innocent sometime later so if you're justified today you can't be more justified tomorrow or the next day 10 years 50 years from now if you're still alive okay now sanctification is what takes place upon justification That is, once God has declared you not guilty because you have put your trust in Jesus, he begins the process of making you like Jesus. And that's the doctrine of sanctification. And this is where we see a major difference, right? Whereas justification occurs at a point in time, one point in time, sanctification is a process over time. An entire lifetime, in fact. And guys, this is why we often see the scriptures talk about how we were saved, are being saved, and will be saved. We were saved justification. We are being saved sanctification. And we will be saved glorification when Jesus returns. Now, what Paul has in mind here in 2 Corinthians 3 is sanctification. The process by which God changes us from one degree of glory, one degree of glory to another, which is another way of saying that we are changed to look more and more like Jesus. And this is the goal of the Christian life. Hear me. We can't miss this. This is God's goal for you. If you're ever wondering what is God's goal for my life, this is it. His desire for you is to be transformed from one degree of glory, one degree of Christ-likeness to another, to another, to another. I love how John Orper put it. It means to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place. To perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through my eyes. To think what he would think, to feel what he would feel. And therefore, do what he would do. And this is why I want us to pause and ask ourselves, is this true of us? Do we live increasingly as Jesus would in our place? Do we see what Jesus would see if he were, if he were to look through our eyes? Do we think what he would think? Do we feel what he would feel? Therefore, do we do what he would do? Because this is what it's about. 
Listen, the Christian life is not about coming to church once a week for two hours. This is not about checking off our religious boxes and knowing what I, what I can or cannot do as a follower of Christ. That is not what this is about. No, it's about becoming more like Jesus in my character. That my life, that my life would look more like the kind of life that he would live. Brothers and sisters, this is what it's about. And what Paul is pointing out here in our text is that this too is the work of God. This too is the work of God. What we can never forget is that salvation is all of God from start to finish. From beginning to end. Listen, we are not justified by grace and sanctified by sweat. I don't know how many people think that. It is alarming how many people in our churches think that growth in the Christian life is basically up to them. Now, we got a part to play for sure. It involves a partnership with God, and I'm going to talk about that. But the Bible makes clear, the scriptures make clear that we are justified how? By grace through faith, and we are sanctified how? The exact same way. By grace through faith. And it's when we forget this, it's when we lose sight of this, that we experience what theologians call the sanctification gap. And this is something that I've been learning in my spiritual formation classes at Talbot. But the sanctification gap is the experiential gap between the ideal and the real. The experiential gap between what we know to be ideal and what we actually experience. Let me explain what I mean by that. The ideal is what we want to be, what we want to do. So, for example, we listen to a sermon at the beginning of the, of the year to carry each other's burdens. And we hear that and go, man, I want to be that kind of a person. I want to be someone who carries other people's burdens. Or we listen to a sermon on the power and the love of God that is ours in Christ. And we go, man, I want, I want to know that kind of power. I want, I want to be rooted and grounded in that kind of love. Or we read the Bible, we read the call of Scripture to put off lust and to put on righteousness and holiness. We hear that and we want that. And we feel excited about tackling it and moving towards it. And we get to work. With sincere and eager hearts, we work on becoming that kind of person. Someone who comes alongside and carries other people's burdens. Someone who walks in the power and the love of God. Someone, who, someone who's marked by holiness. But as time goes by, what often happens? That initial excitement that we felt begins to wear off as we become frustrated with the work. Meaning I can't seem to get there. And it's not for lack of effort. Man, I'm trying. I'm trying my butt off. But I keep falling back into the same patterns, the same sins, over and over again. And that's where like, man, what is wrong with me? What's wrong? What's my problem? Why can't I get this right? And to make matters worse, this isn't the first time I heard a sermon on this. You know? I felt convicted then and I feel convicted now and I want this, but I can't get there despite my best efforts. And then I start feeling guilt and shame 
over my failure to do what I desire to do. Then what happens? That guilt and shame turns into a questioning where we wonder if the Christian life really works. Does this stuff really work or is it just a nice idea? Is it just a pie in the sky or is this for real life? (laughs) That then all leads to everything feeling like a burden where there's no more excitement. There's no real joy. It all just feels so burdensome and you you wonder where this easy yoke that Jesus promised is because it feels pretty stinking heavy. And finally, there's despair. You despair because none of it has worked, and I suck. How many of you can relate to what I just described? How many of you have been there? We all have. We've all experienced this. As believers, we want to grow in God. We want to change. And yet many of us, many of us struggle with guilt and shame because we are not where we feel we should be. And when we find ourselves in that place, guys, there are one of three ways we can go. The first is resignation. In other words, this is just the way it is. This is a Christian life. It all just feels like one big burden. And man, my spiritual life is dry, but this is just the way it is. It feels like the valley of dry bones that Ezekiel talks about. But this is the Christian life, and you've resigned. The second is immorality. That is, we act out in sinful ways because we want to feel something. I need something to make me feel alive, and something is better than nothing. And so we turn to vices. We turn to the things of this world like alcohol or porn, gambling. The third is morality. And this is the big temptation for those of us that are dedicated and committed to God. To do what we can in our own power to relieve ourselves of the guilt and shame we feel. So what do we do? We do more. We give more. We serve more. We read more. We pray more. We do more thinking that more of what I do will do the trick. My guess is that in a room full of people like this, we have people in all those places. Some of you today have resigned. You're at a place of resignation. You just accepted that, man, this is it. This is pretty much all I can expect. This is the Christian life. My, my life is dry bones. And you just find yourself going through the motions. Some of you right now are living in sin. Some of you right now are actively walking in disobedience. And you don't want to be doing that stuff. You hate that you do it. And yet you keep going back to it because you need something to make you feel alive. And some of you are working hard to be good, to be godly. But what's driving that isn't love for God. No, you're trying to appease God. You're trying to appease God. And you're trying to cover up your deficiencies, your guilt, and your shame. 
Wherever you find yourself today, I believe God has a word for you. I believe God has a word for you here in our passage. So let's dive right in. And in our passage, or the backdrop of what Paul writes here in our passage is what takes place in Exodus 34. And in that passage, Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. Where he receives the law. And when he comes down from the mountain, his face was what? Shining, literally. He was literally reflecting the glory of God on his face. And because that freaked the people out, he put, on the, he put a veil over his face. And this took place every time Moses went into the presence of God. Every time he meets with God and encounters, experiences his glory, he's changed. He's transformed to the point that his face is like a mag light and it's shining and it freaks people out again and so he's got to cover it up. He's got to put a veil over his face. That's the backdrop of what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians 3. And what he's pointing out here is the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. Did you get that? The superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. And he begins in verse 7. Now the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the israelites could not gaze at moses' face because of his glory which was being brought to an end will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory paul here makes a bold declaration he says the old covenant was a ministry of what death wow how in what way was the old covenant a ministry of death here's how because the law saves no one the law saves no one all it does is condemn the whole purpose of the law was to show humanity god's holiness and how far they fall short of his perfection thus driving them to see their need for who a savior that's all the purpose that's the whole purpose of the law and yet the law was glorious because it reflected the glory of god and that's the glory that was on moses's face but paul says that glory fades and it did over time moses's face it would diminish the shine would diminish it would fade away and paul says in verse 8 will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory in other words, if the law that produced death was glorious, how much more glorious is the new covenant in the Spirit who gives life? Verse 9, for if, if, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, old covenant, the ministry of righteousness, new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses the new covenant. For what, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, old covenant, much more will what is permanent have glory, new covenant. He continues in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened 
For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul here says Moses' veil. You remember the, Moses, uh, the veil that Moses wore over his face? He says it was prophetic. In the same way it veiled God's glory from a sinful people. There's a veil over the hearts of those who read the old covenant today, namely the Jews. A veil that keeps them from seeing glory, true glory. And it is only when one turns to Jesus that the veil is lifted, it's removed, so that they can truly see the glory of God in the face of Christ. He then says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Don't miss this. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, wherever God's Spirit is, there's freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from our bondage to sin, Romans 7, 1 through 6. Freedom from sin, Romans 6, 2. Freedom from Satan, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Freedom from death, Romans 8, 2. All of which means the Spirit sets you free to live your life in God. He frees you. He frees you from all those things so that you can live your life in God. So that you can walk in obedience to the one who sets you free. This is how the Bible defines freedom. Which is a complete opposite of how the world defines it. Our world defines freedom as what? As the removal of any and all constraints on our choices, right? And this is best exemplified in what the great Scandinavian philosopher, Princess Elsa, said. No right, no wrong. No rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Can't stand that song. <laughs> but think about what it's saying. Think about what it's saying, okay? You can't tell me what's right or wrong. Is that not the mantra of our day? You can't tell me what's right or wrong. No rules apply to me. You know why? Because I'm free. I'm free. This is the dominant view of freedom out here in the West. And our children are being indoctrinated into this one Disney movie at a time. I am free to do whatever I want to do, whatever pleases me. But the Bible says that's what got you into trouble in the first place. That's what got you enslaved. But the Spirit frees you from slavery to sin so that you can do what you were meant to do, so that you can be what you were meant to be, so that you can fully realize your true self as God intended. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about, and I've shared this before. This is from Tim Keller. But fish are meant to live where? In water, right? They have gills, which are meant to extract oxygen, not from air like us, but from water. And they have fins, not to walk on land, but to glide and swim through water. Now, according to our society, fish shouldn't have to live in water. Don't let anyone tell you what to do, fish. 
don't have to be in water. Come join us on land. You're free. How do you think that would, how do you think that's going to turn out? Not too good. You see, unless the fish is restricted to water, it loses its freedom. Do you see that? Because true freedom, listen, true freedom is the ability to fulfill what you were made to be. This is why, this is why when people see the commands of God in the Bible and see it as enslaving, they're missing it entirely. They don't get it. They're not seeing it. The commands of God, the commands in the scriptures are meant to help us live as we were meant to live, and that's in God. And the freedom the Spirit brings is not just the freedom to choose, but to choose the good, to choose to live our lives in the one who made us for himself. And not only does the Spirit free us to live our lives in God, he transforms us into the image of God. And that's what Paul says in verse 18, and we all. Oh, stop there. This is huge. In Moses' day, who had access to God's presence? Moses. Moses and Moses alone. Not even the high priest. Only Moses could come into the presence of God. But Paul here says we all. Not just Moses, not just pastors, not just elders, not just the most spiritual or mature among us. Every single one of us that is in Christ. We all, with unveiled face, with nothing obstructing our view, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Oh, saints, we cannot miss what Paul is saying here. It all comes down to this. The change you long for, the transformation God intends for you comes from who? The Spirit. He is the one who transforms us into the image of Christ. From one degree of Christ-likeness to another. Bible scholar Gordon Fee defined the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. I like that. The Holy Spirit is the empowering presence of God in the lives of his people. And this is why Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, it's a good thing that I'm going away. Remember when he said that? It is to your advantage. It's to your benefit. It's good for you that I'm going away because if I don't go, the Spirit will not come. Jesus says there's something better than him standing beside you in the flesh. Which is kind of hard to believe if I'm honest. I mean, what could be better than Jesus standing right here, right next to me? He says, it's my spirit living inside of you. To empower you from the inside. To empower you from the inside to do what you cannot do on your own. And this was a promise of the Old Testament, was it not? God says in Ezekiel 36 that a day is going to come when I'm going to put my spirit in human hearts. And the people back then were like, no way. You got to be kidding. There's no way. I get the temple. I get the holy of holies, but, but in, in human beings? And God says, yes. I'm going to put my spirit in them, and I, I'm going to give them a new word. I'm going to 
take that stone of flesh and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh and I'm going to give them new desires. And from the inside, from the inside, they're going to want to obey my commands and my spirit is going to empower them to do it. He's going to empower them to walk according to my statutes. Now check this out. When Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the law, what were the people down below doing? Worshiping a golden calf, right? And in anger, he takes the tablets and he throws them at them. And what happens? How many people die? 3,000. 3,000 people are struck dead. Now fast forward to Acts chapter 2. It's Pentecost. And you know what the Feast of Pentecost was? It was a celebration of the giving of the law, okay? It's Pentecost, and what happens at Pentecost? The Spirit comes down. The Spirit comes down. The Spirit of God descends upon his people like fire and wind. And when Peter gets up, he gets up, and he preaches the gospel and the power of the Spirit. And what happens? How many people get saved? Not 3,001, not 3,999. 3,000. Coincidence? No way. God was confirming what he said he would do, putting his spirit in human hearts to bring freedom for the captive and to bring power for, that, for them to walk according to his ways. This is why we see command after command after command in the New Testament to walk in the spirit to live in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit because of the simple fact that we cannot live the Christian life apart from the Spirit. We can't. We can't. And the quicker we get this, the sooner we realize this, the sooner we will realize where true power lies. And this, brothers and sisters, is where we, this is where we see the inadequacy of willpower. To bring about change. The inadequacy of willpower to change us. Now, willpower isn't bad, not at all. Willpower is a good thing. In fact, the more we grow in God, the more you grow in the Lord, the more your capacity to do good should grow. Things that were incredibly hard, things that used to be incredibly hard for you, should become easier. As you grow and mature in Christ. So willpower is not bad. If it works, use it. But the problem is that willpower only goes so far. And only does so much. It does not and it cannot deal with my deepest problems. And this is why, listen. This is why we continue to sin when we know so much. Why telling ourselves to stop doing what we know we shouldn't be working doesn't work. For example, how many times have you as a parent lost it with your kids and told yourself after, man, I got to stop yelling at my kids. I'm going to be more patient from now on. And yet you lose it again and again and again. Or how many times have you said to God, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of worrying. And I know you tell me not to worry, so 
I'm going to stop worrying and I'm going to put my trust in you. And yet you're gripped with worry the next time you're faced with uncertainty. Or how many times have you looked at porn after telling yourself to stop looking at porn? After promising God that you're not going to look at it again and asking it to take the desire away, only to fall into it again, and you're racked with guilt and shame because you did it again. I know this is resonating with a lot of us right now. How is it that we as believers can know so much? And we've heard sermon after sermon after sermon about these things. We know the truth and we desire the good. We do. We want it. We we want to walk in obedience to God. And yet we struggle so much not to sin. Why is that? Because here's the thing. Most of us don't intend to sin. Most Christians I know don't wake up in the morning intending to worry. Most believers I know don't get up in the morning intending to be unloving towards their spouse. Or be anxious or envious or lustful or critical or judgmental. Most Christians I know want the opposite. But these things continue to trip us up. We keep doing them. And as a result, we're constantly, we're constantly hounded by guilt and shame. So what's the problem? Why is it so hard? Why is it so stinking hard to do the things we want to do and so hard to stop doing the things we want to stop doing? Dallas Willard gives us the answer. He said, willpower is not that powerful. Willpower is not that powerful. The problem is that the will is incredibly weak. What we want, what we want to do, we don't have the power to do it. Especially when dealing with the stuff that's deep inside here. especially when we're dealing with the stuff that is deep in our hearts, that is deep beliefs and desires that sit well below the surface in what theologians call the the hidden heart. The hidden heart. And guys, this is the part of us that we are often unaware of. This is the part of us where our sin habits lie. And this is what Paul calls the flesh, the part of us that moves us to act against our better intentions, our better desires, our better judgments. That's why most of us don't intend to sin. Rather, we leak. We leak. We just leak from the hidden heart. In other words, the sins we commit are just the tip of the iceberg. I need you to hear me. The sins we commit is just the tip of the iceberg. But underneath the surface, man, is a whole glacier. There's a glacier of beliefs and desires that have been formed all throughout our lives. I'll give you an example. I may believe consciously that I shouldn't worry about my finances because God is good and because he has promised to take care of me. And yet worry leaks out. 
I worry. I worry about my finances. Why? Because underneath the surface, deep in my heart, is a belief that nobody really cares about my problems. Or better yet, if I'm really being honest, there's the belief that God doesn't really care about me. Therefore, he can't be trusted. I can't trust him. That belief lies deep hidden in my heart. And despite my intentions to not worry about my finances, I worry. It leaks out. I'll give you another example. I was sharing with Pastor Ray this week uh, some of my recent bouts with anger. I've just been carrying this, this anger in my heart. And he goes, me too. And we were both commiserating. <laughs> we're just struggling, man. We're just struggling. They're just this low hum. Is that how you put it, right? This is hum of anger that we're just constantly carrying. And, and we don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. I desperately don't want to be like that. And yet, anger leaks out. It leaks out. And I'm sure with my wife, I'm barking at my kids. I'm impatient with the people that are on the road with me. Why? Because underneath the surface is a glacier of belief that says, I'm just not enough. I'm just not enough. I just don't measure up. And I'm just tired. I'm just tired of feeling like this. For much of my life, I've been made to feel like this, and I'm just tired of feeling inadequate, tired of feeling that, that I'm just not enough. And that sadness, that profound sadness that I carry in my heart, it gets expressed in anger up on the surface. Does that make sense? That's why telling myself to stop being angry isn't going to work. Willpower doesn't stand a chance against that. Listen, willpower doesn't stand a chance against your addiction. It doesn't stand a chance against trauma. It doesn't stand a chance against parent wound. This is why we get so discouraged when we commit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to do better. God, I'm not going to lust. God, I'm not going to lose my temper. God, I'm not going to be envious. We make commitment after commitment after commitment only to fall into it again. Because willpower cannot go up against my deepest problems. What then is the solution? How do we go about doing the good we actually want to do? Here it is. By addressing the heart. The hidden heart. We've got to address the hidden heart. The only way we change, listen guys. The only way we change, the one, only way we actually change is by dealing with the glacier. The glacier of beliefs and desires that lie below the surface. This is why surface corrections don't work. Why resolving to stop doing certain things won't work. 
why having accountability partners is not the answer. It's not. And I got nothing against accountability. I need it. You need it. We all need it. I preached an entire message on that during the pandemic. But that is not the answer unless you deal with the stuff in here, in the hidden heart, the stuff, the glacier underneath the surface. It doesn't matter what you try to fix on top. And this is where we see, as Willard said, that trying in the Christian life will not be enough. The answer is not to double down and try harder. That is not the answer. The answer is to be retrained in the spirit. What you and I need is to be retrained in the spirit. That is, we need to be taken on a journey by the Holy Spirit to reform our hearts so that our beliefs and our desires are ones that are informed and shaped by the gospel, and only the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit can crack open our hearts and reveal the stuff that's hidden there. The, the, the sin habits, the beliefs, and the desires that drive us to do what we do, and only the Spirit can begin the process of transformation. Only the Spirit can do that. How? How does he do that? Here's the main way. Through the disciplines of the Christian life. What we call spiritual disciplines. Or what some have called spiritual practices. I'm talking about things like reading the Bible. Prayer. Fasting. Worship. Sabbath. Solitude. Community. Just to name a few. You know why we call them spiritual disciplines? Because they open us to the Spirit. Hear that again. The reason we call these practices spiritual disciplines is because they open us to the Spirit. These practices open our hearts. They open our hearts to the Spirit, allowing Him to search our hearts and know our hearts and reveal our hearts and transform our hearts. And this is why, this is why we're constantly telling you to read your Bibles. To spend time in prayer. To come out to church, to be involved in community. Not to make you religious, but to remake your heart. To remake your heart so that you create the space in your life for the Spirit to work in your heart. And to bring about the change that you desire. Because here's what I know. Here's what I know. We become like what we behold. We become like whatever we behold. Moses went up that mountain and he met with God. He encountered glory. He was exposed to glory and he wore that glory on his face. It is no different with you and me. We become like whatever we behold. Another way of saying that is that what we give our attention to, we become. Whatever you and I give our attention to, we become. You see, if you're not being shaped by the Spirit, you're being shaped by something. And truth is, you and I, we are being shaped 
we are being shaped 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Listen, whatever you regularly give your attention to, whatever you do on a regular basis is forming you. Like the shows we watch on TV. Speaking of shows, I'm going to ruffle some feathers by saying this, but I don't care. I don't know how many times I've, heard over, I've overheard Christians talk about Game of Thrones a few years back, and it's a new spinoff that's airing now, I think, The House of the Dragon, how good it is, how awesome it is, how engaging it is. But these shows are known for their graphic sex scenes. So much so that they created a brand new word from these shows. I'm not making this up. It's called sex position. Not sex positions. Sex position, one word. And it means a way to keep viewers hooked by combining important plot exposition with explicit sex scenes. So you can't turn away, you can't skip it, you can't fast forward it, or else you'll miss an important part of the plot. So they make you watch it. Sex position. And we have Christians. We have people who are in the, in the kingdom of light, exposing themselves to the darkness without a second thought. And we wonder why we struggle with lust. But it's not just the shows we watch. Guys, it's the music we listen to. It's the stuff that we read online. It's the blogs you read. It's the stuff we look at on our phones. It's the people we spend time with. It's the places we frequent. All those things are forming you. Far more than you realize. Do not underestimate the power of a habit to shape you. Don't. You and I are nothing more than the cumulative effects of our daily habits. That's all we are. What we give ourselves to on a regular basis, we become. Now the spiritual disciplines, you know what they are? They're counterformation. They counter the, the forming and shaping influences of the world so that we are formed into the image of Christ instead. And that's, that's why when we read, when we take the time to be in this book, when we take the time to be with God in prayer, when we fast from food, when we come to church and we worship with God's people, when we do these things, you know what we're doing? We're beholding glory. We're beholding glory. We are beholding the glory of the Lord. And the Spirit transforms us, verse 18, into that image, into the same image from one degree of glory, from one degree of Christ-likeness to another. So the more we look to Jesus through the practices of Jesus, 
the more we become like Jesus. That's why we do what we do. That's why we gather around this book. That's why we go, gather corporately for worship. That's why we fast. That's why we practice solitude. That's why we observe Sabbath. So that we can behold the glory of the Lord. Because whatever we behold, we become. And my hope and my prayer for you in 2023 is that you would be more like Jesus in every way. In the way you think, in the way you feel, in the way you see, in the way you live, that you would be more like Jesus in every way, that by this time next year, you will look even more like Jesus because you beheld his glory. And because you opened yourself to the Spirit's empowering presence in your life. And that is my resolution. My New Year's resolution is to do everything in the Spirit. Everything. In fact, we had a cousin's gathering on New Year's Eve, and we were... All of us were to come having asked God to give us a word for 2023. And so I did that. I spent time before God asking to give me a word that I would like to have characterized my life this year. And the word that he impressed upon my heart was spirit. To do everything in the spirit. And that's my resolution. That's my goal for this year. When I drive my car, I want to drive in the spirit. And I've been doing that more and more. It's made all the difference. I want to watch Netflix in the spirit. When I'm looking at my phone, when I'm scrolling, I want to scroll in the spirit. I want to interact with my wife. I want to deal with my kids in the spirit. I want to deal with my negative emotions in the spirit. I want to be angry in the spirit. I want to lust in the spirit. Now hold up, I was good until the last part. What do you mean I want to lust in the spirit? What do you mean I want to lust in the spirit? Here's what I mean. When I find myself in that place, when I find myself being lustful, I want to invite God into that. I want to be with God in that. And I want to open myself to the Spirit and what He would want me to see, what He's, what he's showing me about me and about my desire and what I'm really after. I want to be with God in that place. And I want to fight that temptation in the power of His might. That's what it means to lust in the Spirit. I want to do everything in the spirit. And that's my word for 2023, spirit. So we had our cousins gathering. A couple of days later, we went to my in-laws to celebrate New Year's. And Gene's dad is a pastor, and so he gave all of his children, all of his grandchildren, a verse for the year. A verse as a blessing. You know what mine was? You know what it gave me? Acts 1 8. 
but you shall receive power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Coincidence? No way. That was God's confirmation for me. that he wants me to walk in the power of the Spirit. Not just this year, but all my remaining days. Dallas Willard said, the Christian life is what you do when you realize you can do nothing. I love that. Think about what he's saying. The Christian life is what you do only when you realize you can do nothing. That's what Jesus said, wasn't it? Apart from you, you can do what? Nothing. Don't you love his confidence in us? You can do nothing apart from me. Thanks, Jesus. I think I I probably would have said something like, apart from you, you can do maybe a little bit. Nope. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The good news is that he did not leave us alone. He didn't leave us as orphans. No, he gave us his spirit. He gave us the Spirit of God to live in us, to be with us every moment of the day, to empower us to do and to be and to live the life that Jesus died to give. Guys, listen, change is possible. Change is possible. You know that sin that you can't seem to shake? It's You can change. You can change. But only the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit of God can bring about the freedom and the change that you long for. So church, let's walk in dependence on the Spirit in 2023. Every day, every moment. Let's just walk in dependence on the Spirit Let's let's make a conscious decision to live all of life, to do everything in the Spirit. Let's frame our lives. Guys, this year in 2023, let's frame our lives around the spiritual disciplines. Let's commit to reading the Bible. Let's commit to spending time in prayer. Let's commit to fasting. Let's commit to, to community, to coming out to church. Let's commit to Sabbath. Let's commit to all these things. so that the Spirit can transform us into the image of Christ from one degree of Christ-likeness to another. God, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. the hope of change, the hope of transformation, the hope that we are not stuck where we are. And God, some of us in this room feel so stuck. And Father, right now I pray for those in this room who feel so dry, who feel so incredibly dry. 
God, I pray for those who have resigned. Those for whom this all just feels like a burden. And there's no joy. There's no joy in church. There's no joy in people. There's no joy, God, in you. God, I pray for them. And I pray, God, that you would breathe life into their hearts again. God, just like you caused the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel to to come alive, you blew your spirit in them. God, would you blow upon every heart here, every heart within the sound of my voice. God, blow. Spirit of God, fall. Fall on every dry bone. Every person, God, right now who feels incredibly dry, God, pour out your spirit upon them and cause them, God, to live. Cause them, God, to live again in you. And for all those, God, who are looking to the things of this world to make them feel alive, God, I pray for them right now. For those, God, to those who are living in sin. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who are neck deep in pornography. God, set them free. God, set them free. God, please help them to see that they don't have to. They don't have to. Because what they're looking for in porn, what they're after, God, is found in you. God, would you remind them again? Would you remind them again that the life, the excitement, That vigor is found in you, God. It's found in the face of Christ. Not in those images that cannot bring satisfaction. God, show them. Show them again. God, in your kindness, in your kindness, God, bring them to repentance. Cause them again. Cause them again, God, by the power of your spirit. To walk in accordance with your statutes. Remind them again, God, that you, 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 your spirit set them free. That you have set them free. To realize themselves and to actualize who they were meant to be. And that is in you. God, help us to see that we can't do anything. Not one thing, not one thing apart from you. God, please help us to believe you. That apart from you, Jesus, that we can do nothing. God, please bring us to that place. So that in every moment, in every situation, whatever we're facing, we would be quick to say, God, this is why I need you. This is why I need you, Spirit. Because I can't do this apart from you. So God, make us a people like that. Make us a people like that. And God, I thank you. that you and your mercy and your grace, that you would put your spirit in sinners like us. Thank you, God. 
Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus. That is not because of us. It's not because of what we have done. But it's all because of you. It's all because of what you have done for us. And God, I just feel prompted right now to pray for those who are We're just going through the motions. And for some of us, God, this may always just be cultural. This is routine. This is just what I do. God, would you show them? Would you show them who they really are? And show them, God, who you really are. And God, I pray that you would show all of us the true condition of our hearts. God, expose the things that are hidden deep inside. God, show us our hidden heart. Show us, God, the beliefs and the desires, that glacier of stuff underneath the surface. God, bring us, draw it out. Help us, God. Help us, God. To see what those things are, God, that you would give us the courage to see, to to see what those things really are. Knowing that you take us to those places because you love us. Because you want us to walk in freedom, because you want us to experience the freedom that you died to give. So God, please help us. And to those, God, within the sound of my voice, I do not know you. God, I pray that you would remove the veil. Jesus, only you can do that. And I pray, God, that in your mercy, would you remove the veil? Remove the veil from their eyes. Remove the veil from their hearts. Show them, God, who you really are. Cause them, God, cause them to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Show them what true glory is. That everything they want, everything they long for, everything their heart aches for is found in Jesus. God, do it. Do it, God, for our good and the glory of your name. Sunrise.